1: I think when you look at voting, and we see where it is now, that you know everybody can vote after a certain age, male, female, no matter race, etc., and you see where we started. And so I think it's very important for us to understand, where did we start?
0: That's author and former White House webmaster, Jane Hampton Cook discussing Abigail Adams and women's rights in the Revolutionary Era. And she's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the University of Pennsylvania Press, publishers of Captives of Liberty, Prisoners of War, and the Politics of Vengeance in the American Revolution by T. Cole Jones, available wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, our guest is Jane Hampton Cook, and she's got a new article on Abigail Adams and a celebration of the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, when women got the right to vote. Jane Hampton Cook is a notable personality. She was the former webmaster for the White House you may have seen her across many platforms on cable news. She knows the inner workings of a government, of a president, uh, and in this case, the most famous letter writing pair in American history, Abigail Adams and John Adams. They wrote very candidly to one another about their feelings on many different issues, and Abigail Adams was not afraid to speak her mind and certainly not afraid to nudge her husband in the direction she wanted him to go you'll hear it all but i encourage you to read the article at www.allthingsliberty.com sit back relax and enjoy our interview with jane hampton cook jane hampton cook thank you for joining us
1: thanks for having me
0: tell us about your background
1: Well, I have been writing books for a number of years. I've got 10 books in the marketplace, and most of them are nonfiction, historical. And I really love the Revolutionary War up to the War of 1812 time period. And I worked in the White House for two years as the White House webmaster. And I noticed that the historical section of the White House website was one of the most popular sections. And that kind of spurred my interest in writing more about American history. And I occasionally do some TV news segments. And that's good because it gives me an opportunity to put current news into historical context, which um, is not something we get every day. So um, I really love though, I just have a passion for American history.
0: What first drew your interest into this topic?
1: Well, I was doing some historical consulting work for the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission, which celebrates the 100th anniversary of women winning the right to vote um, on August 18. And and the executive director had given a speech, and she talked about some of the suffragists, and she put it... Um, she identified different qualities like perseverance and initiative and things like that. And that really spurred my interest in writing a book and she encouraged me to do it. And I came to, so I wrote a resilience on parade, short stories of, um, of, suffragist in women's battle for the vote. And I took eight Americans and highlighted different a different quality for each American. So I have two chapters on Abigail Adams about taking initiative, both, you know, taking initiative for independence of her generation, and then just in her taking initiative for remembering the ladies. And so that really kicks off the idea of women's rights that we saw developed in our country.
0: Could you, for some background, give us some information on women in the eighteenth century? What was their life like, and what role did they play?
1: Well, you know life for women um when life for for both men and women was hard, especially hard compared to today, because you know you had to make your own grow your own crops, eat your own food, make your own clothes in many ways, and So women fulfilled that domestic role. They took care of the children um, and they were were homeschooled, I guess, if you will. Women were taught how to read and write, but a lot of women didn't learn to write well. There was sort of a limited education on writing because the focus was on learning to read so you could read the Bible. But someone like Abigail Adams was taught at home. She really devoured the library in her father's library, it just filled with books. And she became a voracious reader. And you can see that in her letters because she quotes the great classics in the English literature frequently. And so it was really kind of for women, they they had sort of a inconsistent education. It just depended on what the family focused on. Whereas some of the men would go to to Harvard, for example, in certain classes of families. And so there was just a sort of an unequal distribution, I guess, of education compared to what we have today.
0: John and Abigail Adams are probably the most famous letter-writing pair in American history. Could you talk about how they used the written word and letters to communicate, sometimes over great distances?
1: So John and Abigail Adams had a great emotional relationship that they were able to maintain that relationship through letter writing, even though they were separated physically. And what I love about them is they really had this strong intellectual chemistry. And he wrote her letters and would say, you know, I long to watch you think you know, that kind of wording that he wanted to just watch her think. He just respected her intellect so much, Um, you know, and he... uh, praised her for her skills and being a statesman and um, different things like that. And so they used those letters to share their opinions and to tell each other what was going on in their respective worlds. And they I- expressed their opinions to each other very frankly. You know, she would tell them about the whiskey tax and how that was affecting her neighbors and how much the price of silver was running in Massachusetts. And so they really did have this really strong relationship. And even though I know it was really hard for them to be separated, what a gift it is to us because we have this record of letters that between the two of them that we wouldn't have had if they had been together the whole time during the revolution.
0: You've already mentioned this phrase, Abigail Adams famously writes it. She tells John to quote, remember the ladies, Could you put that note in context for us?
1: Yes. So it's March 1776, the end of the month. It's March 31st. And several things are happening quickly. She knows that John, who is in Philadelphia, is considering declaring independence from England. She knows that he's really been thinking about that. Thomas Paine's Common Sense came out in January, that pamphlet. She She had read it. She was charmed by it. Hundreds of people were reading Common Sense, which called on separating from England. And also, George Washington had helped evacuate the British from Massachusetts, from Boston, earlier in the month, in March. So by the end of the month, she's really looking hopeful. You know, they've been freed from the British control of Boston, Um, The Continental Congress is meeting again. And so she writes to John a letter and she says, you know, as you're making this new code of laws for America, remember the ladies. And she kind of teases him with some banter and sort of suggests, you know, we just might foment our own rebellion Um, and and she was expressing this desire to have some voice, some way of being represented for the laws that she was going to be expected to obey.
0: What was separate from his wife, John Adams's view of women's rights?
1: Well, he responds to her letter with teasing and banter. Um, he says, oh, you know, this is just theory. Um, We know who's really in control. Um, And and he responds as if she was kind of um, being light and teasing. However, he does really think about it. And he he really respects his wife's intellect. So for him, it wasn't so much about capability. It was, I think, really mind blowing to him to think about anybody, male or female, voting who didn't own land. And that became really the focus of some of the debates that he had after his wife's letter.
0: In your article, a man named James Sullivan plays a very important role in this story. Uh, Who was he?
1: So James Sullivan at the time was a Massachusetts attorney. And he was really excited because the evacuation of the British from Boston opened up the opportunity to reform a state legislature for Massachusetts. And so the the assembly was coming back together and Sullivan was thinking about, well, who should be able to vote? Let's do this again. Let's do this new and let's expand voting to beyond this archaic system of focusing on land ownership. And he had written a letter and Adams read this letter. It was written to a mutual friend and Adams re- responded and they had this debate in in written form over the issue of who should be able to vote. And so Sullivan, um, we read the letters, read each letter. You see that Adams really did think about what his wife had to say about you know, should women vote, and um, and their responses really brings out kind of the nucleus of the debate: who should be the consent of the governed? If you were required to obey the law, shouldn't you say have a say in who makes those laws? And at the time, all, there were only about sixteen percent of the population who owned land, and that meant that eighty-four percent of the population did not own land. So there was a huge disenfranchisement of, of, the, of most of the population. And it was those um, dynamics that really um, made it mind-blowing to think about everybody voting.
0: How does Adams respond to Sullivan? What is his stance?
1: So Sullivan was advocating for expanding the vote Non landowners in some way. And, you know, at the time, if you didn't, there were a lot of men who did not own land. There was, you know, the, the white working class male who was a tenant farmer. Maybe he was an artisan and he had a patron who was a landowner. So, pretty much, if you didn't own land, you were dependent on someone who did. And Adams took the position of, well, wait a minute, if we expand the vote, to the, to the male who's a tenant farmer, then what about the woman who is intellectually capable as that man? And he played it out that where does this end? Do you want 12 year old boys to be able to vote? You know, where does this stop? And for Adams, it was too much to expand it beyond the definition of a landowner. But Sullivan was w- willing to say, hey, let's give it to the tenant farmer let's give it you know to the soldier um, by implication who's who's on the battlefield fighting and they so that was what they really split on Adams couldn't get past the concept of the landowner being the voter because the landowner was culturally independent and not dependent on someone else and so he was theoretically the landowner came into the voting booth without bias because if you were a tenant farmer you had some political allegiance to your landowner Um, and that that's one reason why the landowner was the voter in that time period
0: obviously abigail adams will never get the right to vote in her lifetime but what sort of advancements will she see for women uh, in her lifetime
1: well, you know, she, she didn't get the right to vote. Um, and one thing that she, she did see her husband talk about um, was that the idea that more people should be able to own land. That was John's answer to that particular question. Well, let's make it easier for everybody to own land. and In Abigail's lifetime, you see, you see more advances for education for women. There was a book that came out, The Rights of Women, and it talked about expanding education. If you need to educate women better than we do now. And over the decades, by the time you get to the 1840s, when the women's rights movement officially formed, those women have had a much better education. They've gone to public school. They've gone to finishing school. Um, And they are better educated than Abigail's generation. So she did see that improvement in her lifetime.
0: How does this topic help us understand the revolutionary era better?
1: I think when you look at voting, and we see where it is now that, you know, everybody can vote after a certain age, male, female, no matter race, etc., And you see where we started. And so I think it's very important for us to understand where did we start? What was our starting point as a nation? And we look at that starting point in 1776, and we realize that they wanted to trade royalty for representation. They wanted a Congress. They wanted to have representatives. They didn't want a king. They wanted a a president that... Changed every four to eight years, but they they worked that part of the representative form of government out pretty well. What they didn't work out well was who would determine who those representatives were going to be, and that took much longer. And so I think it's just so incredibly important that we know where we started as a nation, and that helps us appreciate you know how far we've come, and it helps us to appreciate those principles. Um, that, that guided different generations of Americans that all are created equal and endowed by a creator um, and that those rights are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness.
0: Jane Hampton Cook, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia.